Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. As regular listeners will know, we explore every aspect of gardening, plant care, growing your own fruit and vegetables, pest control, garden design, ideas for small spaces and much more. Plus, our podcast brings you the most up-to-date advice, techniques and tips from RHS experts throughout the gardening year. I'm Jenny Bowden, one of the RHS's team of horticultural advisors. Coming up later, a complete guide to composting, why do it, how to do it and what to compost and what to avoid in order to create the perfect soil improver for your garden. RHS Horticultural Advisors answer your seasonal questions and, as always, the latest news on RHS garden events across the UK. But first, the 2016 flower show season started with a flourish two weeks ago with the RHS London Early Spring Plant Fair. This show is held every year at the RHS headquarters in Vincent Square. It's a riot of colour and scent and a welcome relief from the winter gloom and cold. Inside the packed halls, the crowds of garden lovers were eagerly buying bulbs and interrogating the expert growers about the stunning plants on sale. This year was particularly colourful as the mild winter has brought out many spring flowers, such as primroses, into bloom much earlier than usual. We took the opportunity to speak to some of the specialist plant nurseries about their collections and what key jobs they're tackling this month. Rosie Hardy from Hardy's College Garden Plants in Free Folk. In March, you've still got the really lovely spring flowers coming out. So you've got the epimediums looking fantastic. The begonias are just coming through. Pulmonarias are in full swing, um, both with their leaf coming through and their flowers looking really wonderful. In um, March, you're looking at working out whether there are any spaces whether any plants look as though they haven't managed to make it through the winter there's always the odd one or two that means you've got a chance it's always great you know it's not not nice that plants die but it is a great opportunity to get something new and put it in Um, but the other thing you should be checking is that your roses are all perfectly okay and you know just checking that there aren't too many slugs and snails around they you know Getting rid of them in the early March time will stop you having a real problem later on when plants are really starting to come through. Lift up stones, you've got to lift up leaves, that's where they go and hide, and just pick them up and put them into a bucket and you know get rid of them if you've got a duck pond go and take them to the duck pond ducks love them they will eat them all up it's one way of getting rid of them don't throw them over your neighbor's fence because they'll come back (laughs) we've had a really mild winter so there's going to be a lot of insects around so do watch out for things like uh, green fly green fly can spread viruses into plants so do try and keep the green fly down and you know you've just got to keep your eye it's observation in a garden that's why it's good to go out and look at it it's not look at it from your sitting room window it's go out and actually be out in your garden get involved in it and the more you are out there the more you see whether your plants are happy or not hi my name is graham blunt i'm from plant base uh, nursery down in the southeast and we're at the rhs london uh, spring show in the halls on our display today i've I've got loads of exotic plants from all around the world. Our nursery, again, I said, based in the Kent countryside, um, we grow every single thing ourselves from scratch, from seed, from cuttings, from division. Nothing but nothing is bought in. We grow most of our plants outside. We believe in being tough and hardy. 
and I'm trying to develop a range of hardy exotics that can be grown outside given the right conditions and that's what I have on my display. Um, some of the jobs I'll be doing in March, I start to sow the more summery plants like adelphiniums, lupins, um, some of the later alpines. I'll already sown the protosea family from, they'll already been done. Uh, those I'll be doing in February. So much depends on the weather in March. If it starts to warm up, then you need to get things out. It's all very weather dependent, but spring is starting, start moving things on. Just keep an eye on the weather, basically. One of my favourite genuses that I grow is the Protosea family, and that's Proteas from South Africa, Banksias from Australia, Lamarches from South America. And they're thought of being very weak and very fussy plants. They are fussy but only if you get the wrong things with them. If you get the right compost with them and they're grown correctly, then they can be as tough as old boots. Some of the proteas come from the Drakensberg, so they can handle minus 16. They're really, really hardy. Once they're established, they're really easy to grow, and the flowers are absolutely amazing. Hi, I'm Marcel Floyd from Floyd's Climbers and Clematis, based down in Wiltshire. Our key jobs in March, really, is just we're just tidying things, things up. If you're out in your garden... You should have already done the pruning on your clematis. You should have done it at the end of February, to be honest with you. In March, it's just a matter of getting out there and feeding them. So you can give them a nice top dressing of sulfate of potash. If you happen to be wandering by eating a banana, chuck the banana skin down on the ground. Again, it's potassium. Watch out for the new shoots of clematis coming from below the ground because the slugs and snails will be just starting to move. You can put pellets down if you want. If you want to go organic, Give them porridge oats. Porridge oats are great. What tends to happen is the slug comes along, it gets wrapped up in the porridge oats, it dries them out lovely. You take them inside, put them on low heat, in a pan with a bit of lemon and away you go. But no, seriously, it doesn't harm your dogs, it doesn't harm your, harm your cats, all the birds or anything, and it dries them out lovely. As long as you prune them early March, but the ones you're going to be pruning are going to be your Texensis, your Viticellas, and you're going to be hitting them back hard, unless you've got them grown up trees or shrubs. If you've got them grown up trees or shrubs, just give them a gentle prune down to about three foot rather than right down to four inches. On the Viticellas, you're virtually just chopping them back hard. You can chop them back with a pair of shears if they're well established. If you're tidying up some of your big flowering hybrids, as you're looking from the top of your clematis coming down, prune to a strong pair of buds. Specialist Nurseries at the RHS London Early Spring Plant Fair. You can find details of all the exhibitors at the fair, as well as photos and news from the event, at the RHS website. Here, you can also find details of RHS shows round the UK in 2016. I'm Jenny Bowden, and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Now, compost. Most gardeners know that compost is vital for successful plant growth but many are not sure why it's important, what exactly it does, and how to make it yourself. With so many types of compost available in garden centres and so much advice on composting in books and online, it can be confusing and many less experienced gardeners get discouraged from attempting to produce their own. But don't be put off. Home composting is easy when you know the basics. It can be done in almost every garden, even those without soil, it is the most environmentally friendly way of dealing with the kitchen and garden waste. Plus, it produces compost that is free and can be used as an excellent soil improver. So, to find out the do's and don'ts of this most essential of gardening essentials, RHS advisor Tony Dickerson spoke to horticultural scientist Dr Gracie Barrett in the garden at RHS Wisley in Surrey. 
Well, we're here now today, March, uh, season's beginning, the growing season beginning to uh, start up. And we're in the model vegetable garden at RHS Garden Wisley here in Surrey. And we have a very impressive composting setup. And I'm joined here in the model vegetable garden by Gracie Barrett, who's one of our soil specialists. Now, we're here today to talk about composting. Um, I think most gardeners know they should be composting. Uh, many do and many are very successful, but equally there's a few pitfalls. But I suppose, Gracie, we have to start off, what do we mean by composting? Oh, that's, that's a really good question. So compost, or compost as we're talking about today, is simply just organic material that's undergone um, a microbial biochemical process so that it's been turned from more complex material into much more simple uh, material. But we do have a problem, don't we, that we talk about potting composts and such like now of course they're not really composts at all are they we should really refer the refer to them in a completely different way oh yes so there is a bit of confusion in the uk in particular um, about the term compost so compost is used very loosely throughout horticulture as uh, the stuff we dig into the garden which we're discussing today but also what you put into pots or containers actually what you put into pots and containers is very rarely compost um, it's actually growing media. It's a collection of materials that's, that are designed specifically to support plant growth. Compost is a completely different um, material and that's, that's really designed as a soil conditioner or as a mulch. We've stood here at the side of a, a very impressive compost bin and we'll say more about compost bins later. And I think we've got really good examples of what actually goes into a compost bin or a compost heap. So can we... Uh, analyse what we've got in front of us there Gracie. Yeah sure. The most important thing about making uh, compost is um, you want to get the proportion of the correct materials into the mix that's really the key. So what we've got here is um, it looks like quite a a soft nitrogen heavy mix so we've got lots of green materials we've got lots of veg in there as well. The ideal compost heap you want about 25 to 50 percent soft green nitrogen rich materials so things like um, vegetable peelings or grass clippings. The rest of it, you want it to be much more carbon-rich or um, woody brown materials. So things like um, prunings or bits of sticks, cardboard paper as well you can use. If you get that ratio right, that's half the battle really with good compost. I guess the problem for most gardeners is they tend to have excessive amounts of certain types of material and typically if people have a lawn it will be grass clippings and that's where as Gracie says crunched up paper and crunched up paper is rather better than shredded paper like newspaper or any sort of uh, untreated paper that sort added into the compost heap especially if you've got a lot of grass clippings will certainly help keep it open and such like this is a nice wooden bin purpose made with posts at the corners and uh, six by one planking and such like obviously something gardeners could put together themselves or you can buy these kits but but what are the sort of structures can you use just for composting there's lots of different options it really depends on the size you have on offer in your garden if you have a relatively large garden then you can uh, you can actually build um, these sort of wooden slatted compost bins Um, or you can actually buy them ready to assemble but they're relatively expensive really for what they are. Um, Smaller gardens you can actually buy plastic uh, compost bins from the local council. You can also sort of construct your own really Um, and you can actually have a compost heap and you don't actually need a container. If your compost heap is big enough so it's at least a metre cubed of material you don't necessarily need a container 
containers are good because they keep the material um, sort of confined and out of the way. So, you know, a lot of people with smaller gardens like a container. Now, we've got a good mix of uh, materials here uh, in the compost bin in front of us, but there's certainly some things that uh, you probably don't want to add to a compost heap. What might those be, Gracie? Primarily, what you don't want to be adding is anything diseased. So um, with compost bins at home, temperatures inside don't tend to get really high. So um, they won't, it won't kill off things like um, fungal pathogens, bacterial pathogens. So any material that looks diseased, um, don't put that in your compost heap. You want to dispose of that um, either by burning or through, through normal uh, waste disposal methods. Um, the other thing to look out for is um, if you're using any chemicals in your garden, so you're treating anything with herbicides or pesticides, you want to uh, make sure that doesn't go in the compost heap because um, that can end up in the organic material and then back on the garden. The other thing to avoid really is um, things like meat, um, animal wastes, because that tends to cause bad smells and it attracts vermin as well and flies. And that's not what most people want to be attracting with their compost heap. And I suppose, uh, of course, things like pernicious weeds, things like bindweed and ground elder, uh, always be very uh, circumspect about adding those. If you don't want to put them in your municipal recycling put them into a bucket of water let them just naturally decay and you can then pour that onto your heap there's a few fallacies such as not adding citrus and rhubarb and laurel prunings and conifer prunings on no problem whatsoever woodier items like conifer material do shred and break up as much as possible but uh, uh, all those materials can be added to the compost heap and yes rhubarb does contain certain materials that you wouldn't want or rhubarb leaves contain certain materials you wouldn't want to consume but they break down very rapidly as part of the composting process the composting process itself is really just about um, microbes so um, within the organic matter pile of organic matter you've got a whole host of microbes they come naturally from the soil bacteria fungi uh, another group called actinomycetes which are quite important and what they do is they use that organic material as food um, and they, they break that down as their food source and you have a whole community of organisms which develops over time in your pile so what you go is very complex material right through to more simplified material when the m- microbes have basically used up all that food source and that is what your resulting compost is um, and that's also why you get the heat generated inside the pile it's an oxidization process and they're generating heat and that is why you get the, get the heat change so basically with composting, you're, you're basically growing a community of microbes, feeding them, and they're then working for you to break down that organic material. And if you have a good mix of material, um, sometimes gardeners add it as distinct layers or literally they just mix it with a fork as they go. You'll find materials will break down very well. One or two tips, uh, the compost heap needs to be sufficiently damp but not waterlogged. So in summer I find I often put two or three buckets of water on the heap. Uh, In winter, I tend to keep it covered because you don't want to get saturated. Because the important thing actually in composting is something as such you don't add yourself, but is there. And that's air or particularly oxygen. And oxygen is very important to actually speed up the process. And normally if you dig into your heap and you think that uh, after three, six, nine months it's not decayed, the crucial thing then is to turn the material out quite a laborious uh, job uh, but if you can turn it out use what's usable if you then add the material that hasn't rotted back into the heap you'll find that uh, it will then break down very rapidly once you've added that oxygen and that's a crucial thing to bear in mind with composting you may have to turn the material
Apart from the composition of the material, so your brown to green, um, having sufficient levels of oxygen is probably the other real limiting factor of a good compost. Because you're basically encouraging microbes, um, it's a certain group of microbes that need oxygen to, to do their work. If they don't have the oxygen, they won't be able to survive um, and you'll end up You'll end, the, you'll end up having a slightly different community that's actually um, going through an anaerobic process and that's a much slower process and it tends to generate bad smells. You want to make sure the microbes are the aerobic type, so the air-breathing type. And you do that by regularly turning or incorporating materials that keep the pile open, like um, larger chunks of material. Now, of course, there's lots of environmental benefits in recycling your garden waste on site, but... Uh, I mean, Gracie, what's the point of all this composting? Why are we doing it uh, and why are we then adding it to the soil? Obviously, composting is good from an environmental perspective because you're diverting waste away from landfill, which is a problem. But really, what we use compost primarily for is, is a soil conditioner. Um, so, so soil um, has two components. It has a mineral component and it has a very important organic component. And that organic component is what gives the soil its fertility predominantly. It's what also gives it its structure. So it helps it to drain and it reduces compaction. Um, so if you work your soil um, over time, you tend to start losing this organic matter. It starts getting broken down and oxidised and eventually it starts to affect the soil structure. Um, so essentially what you're doing with compost is you're um, replenishing that living organic component of the soil um, and that will really help to maintain the structure or make a more resilient soil. Um, it also provides a long-term supply of nutrients. So the nutrients in compost are not easily available. They're slowly available over a period of one or two years. So it gives you some long-term fertility as well as the, um, the structural component. It's a re really good thing to add to soil. RHS horticultural scientist Dr Gracie Barrett and Tony Dickerson, my colleague from the RHS advisory team. You can find out more information about composting on the RHS website. Now that March is here and there is definitely a scent of spring in the air, there are lots of activities and attractions on offer at RHS gardens and partner gardens across the UK. Remember, if you're a member of the RHS, you get free entry to all four RHS gardens, plus the opportunity to buy priority tickets to RHS flower shows. The gift of RHS membership also makes a fantastic present, ideal for Mother's Day. You can find out more about the benefits of becoming a member of the RHS and book tickets to shows and events on our website. Just go to rhs.org.uk forward slash join. Here are some of the events coming up in the next few weeks. At Rosemore, it's all about Mother's Day with Time with Mum from the 5th to the 6th of March. Bring Mum along to enjoy a delicious carvery lunch and visit Jane Poole's pop-up studio to have professional portraits taken. There'll also be a small number of food and craft stalls. At Rosemore, there's a spring flower show from the 12th to the 13th of March. Come and view exquisite camellias, early magnolias and rhododendrons from competitions across the southwest and beyond. At Harlow Carr, it's also all about Mother's Day this weekend. Come and celebrate with a wander around the garden to see early spring flowers and enter our photo competition for the chance to win a fabulous hamper. At Hyde Hall, come along and see winning images from the world-renowned International Garden Photographer of the Year competition. That's from the 7th to the 28th of March. At Wisley, come and celebrate Mother's Day on the 6th of March, where early spring flowers will be out in abundance for a relaxing stroll. Also, it's the last day to visit the butterflies in the glasshouse. 
You can also enjoy an afternoon tea. You can book this online or you can call 01483 225 329. And on the 13th of March at Wisley, come along to the Alpine Society show where there'll be displays of alpine plants and bulbs as well as photographs of alpines from around the world. Full details of all events and more are on the RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash garden events list. Now time for some of your seasonal gardening questions. Each month, members of the RHS advice team answer some of the queries they've received recently. Hello, I'm Lee Hunt. I'm the Principal Horticultural Advisor here at RHS Garden Wisley. Hello, I'm Tony Dickerson and I'm a Horticultural Advisor with the RHS. Hello, my name is Guy Barter. I'm Chief Horticultural Advisor for the RHS and I work here at Wisley in Surrey. Lorraine Catlin has emailed in. She says, due to ill health, a lot of the pruning in my garden went overlooked last year. Is there still time to prune my quince? It's got rather out of control. Quince is not one of those trees that really prunes neatly. It, it just wants to look a bit scruffy and untidy. And they, a lot of gardeners actually try and get it too much in shape. And all it does then is produce even more growth. So I'd really keep it fairly basic. If there's some really vigorous upright shoots, they can be shortened back. But the only other pruning I think I'd do would be actually with a saw. And a saw is actually generally much more useful for fruit uh, pruning of fruit trees because it directs your attention to just taking out one or two significant branches, perhaps to let air and light into the actual tree itself, whether it's uh, medlar, quince, apple. Uh, So a little bit of judicious use of a a saw, but just taking out the odd branch or two, and i leave it at that. I think that's quite right, Tony. Um, Also, uh, in pruning, it's ever so easy to cut out the flower buds. So use the saw, take out... Uh, branches rather than going all over giving it a haircut with secateurs and uh, you should be able to restrain the tree and still get a good lot of flowers it's a wonderful ornamental tree as well as being an unusual fruit Lorraine also alludes to the fact that there might be other unpruned things in her garden I think the thing just to avoid in spring is trying to prune spring flowering plants because if you think I'm going to catch up now you will just cut off all the flowers so for spring flowering plants things like lilacs and spireas, the early flowering spireas, then do just wait until they flower before catching up those so that you can enjoy the blooms. Um, But later uh, flowering plants, so things like buddleias, they can be cut back in March time. We have a letter here from R. Thomas from Eastbourne. He says, I was surprised to hear that lilies are poisonous to cats. Are there any type Are there any other types of plants that I should look out for that might harm my pets or visiting animals? Guy, I know you're a cat lover. Uh, Yes, there are um, quite a wide range of plants that are said to harm cats. And these are available on things on websites like the Cat Protection League. Lilies um, come to the attention of uh, people and because in America they are one of the favourite cut flower plants. Um, And so lilies, particularly Lilium longiflorum, uh, which is a tender lily grown in warm parts of the United States, uh, is extremely widely sold for a cut flower. Now, in America, also, cats have to spend a lot of time indoors, in many parts of the, uh, of the country anyway, because the weather is very severe, um, very hot in summer, very cold in winter, and there's large quantities of predatory wildlife, such as coyotes, which have now moved into city areas, uh, which uh, love to feast on cats. 
Um, happily, in Britain, cats um, are relatively free of um, predators and they can also uh, go out in most weathers. It's in America when cats are confined in buildings for long periods with cut flowers that harm tends to occur. Uh, because the cat's natural habit is to be curious and nibble bits of vegetation and if they can go out and nibble some grass that's fine but um, if they're stuck indoors then they'll nibble things that perhaps one would rather they didn't like lilies uh, so it shouldn't be a big problem in britain all the same if you do um, buy lilies either get the pollenless ones or cut out the pollen and uh, make sure your cat has access to outdoors if your cat's an indoor cat and i suggest you choose a, a different cut flower on our website, we've got a page called Potentially Harmful Garden Plants, which actually lists um, plants that are harmful to humans. But there are links through to pages from the relevant organisations for cats, dogs and horses, all of which can suffer if they the wrong plant. And to be aware that the plants that they're allergic to or uh, find toxic can be different. For, so what's toxic to humans is not necessarily toxic to horses and all the variations in between that so it's worth checking the list if you're unsure and of course if in doubt um your pet's welfare is paramount and you should consult your vet sam waters has asked by facebook uh, my pair bore no fruit last year can i encourage it to be more productive with pruning this winter lee what do you think i think the short answer is no um the reason for saying that first is because if the flower buds are not there already, then they won't flower in spring and they won't bear fruit this summer. Um, but the idea of pruning encouraging flowering, yes, that's very true. So getting the, the process of pruning right for your pair um, is going to support long term the production of flower buds and the fruiting. One of the things that uh, Sam doesn't mention actually is whether this is a relatively new plant. Uh, we would expect typically pears to take a few years to begin to set fruit and produce good quality crops. And that can be sort of five to seven years. So much better than years ago when they took for many, many years to get cropping well. Um, but bear in mind that if you're having initial problems after you've planted a new tree, that that is to be expected. The thing is then to get on and do your initial pruning. What we don't know here is actually if the tree flowered. Now, if it flowered and bore no fruit then you immediately think the pollination issue. And, and pears need cross-pollination, really, to set a decent crop. And bees will move pollen from quite large distances, but you know if your neighbour three doors down has cut down or removed their pear tree, that may explain why your previously fruitful tree uh, stops actually setting fruit. So uh, that's worth considering. Um, it could be just for some reason that the tree that was pollinating it was a bit later or earlier in flowering. There's always a very small window uh, for pollination and um, things can change from year to year. So that's also worth considering. The other thing is I'm not entirely sure whether this tree has ever fruited and how much it's fruited. If trees carry a heavy crop, they can have a year of recovery afterwards. Big fleshy rich fruits like pears are very expensive for a tree to provide and it can actually run down its resources to a very high degree and it has to have a rest year and so it has an on year when there's abundant crop then an off year and uh, this is technically referred to as biennial bearing so consider whether your tree has actually um, ever fruited and if so how much if you find it does have on years and off years in the on year um, you can try 
to prune out some of the blossom because flower buds are produced during blossom season and by reducing the blossom you might be able to limit the extent of the off year so that's another thing to, to bear in mind there is more pruning information on our website so whether you've got a young tree or, or one that's got out of hand and needs uh, some renovation uh, you will find web pages to help you mr richards has emailed in azaleas in pots last year my beautiful pots were ravaged by vine weevil i'd like to replace them but i'm worried that the same thing is going to happen how can i best prevent their return the pots are on my paving at the front of the house in summer and then when it gets cold they're brought into the conservatory so vine weevil and returning to azaleas is that likely well vine weevil are an insect um, and they are all female male vine weevils are very rare and they don't fly they walk about um, so they're not going to fly in or travel a long way so uh, usually when you get vine weevil it's because there's a, a population of them in the near vicinity and if there's a population in the near vicinity then um, they yes they will walk into your garden lay their eggs in the summer the larvae will hatch out the larvae are the young um, vine weevil of course and uh, they'll do their feeding over winter in the spring round about april uh, the vine weevil will do what's called pupate where they go into a kind of resting stage and turn from a grub-like little creature, a comma-shaped grub, into an insect. And then they hatch out again in summer and march off round the area, laying their eggs as they go. Their vulnerable point is when the eggs have hatched and the larvae are young and delicate and tender, and that's in August and September. At that time, um, you can protect your plants by either watering them with an insecticide, insecticides are chemicals that kill insects and certain ones are specifically manufactured for treating vine weevil and those are the ones used. They can only be used in pots, they can't be used on the open garden so they're entirely applicable for your azaleas in pots. The other thing that we suggest um, is, much, is much cleverer, is called a nematode and a nematodes are microscopic worms uh, there's about 10,000 different species of nematodes in the world, they're perfectly harmless to um, non-target organisms and you buy these nematodes in a kind of clay and then following the instructions exactly because um, they're very delicate and have to be looked after uh, they're watered very carefully on the pots uh, which should be moist already and in the warm weather of August and September the nematodes can infect the vine weevil larvae carrying a bacterium into the larvae and the poor old vine weevil larvae rots from the inside and there's an end of them so uh, vine weevil uh, can be controlled in this way having said that nothing in life's 100 percent and you may um, get the odd casualty but it should be something that one can bear the good news is that if you have missed your september august treatment you can have another go in april as the soil warms up so you would buy the nematodes then and apply them at that time the chemical control as Guy mentioned, uh, can be used only in containers, but it could be used during any of the winter period. So while the uh, grubs are present, you can treat and kill them at that point. The RHS Advice Team. Remember, you can find more information on all aspects of gardening techniques on the RHS Advice pages on our website, there, you can also watch video guides to key seasonal jobs. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash advice.
As a member of the RHS, you can get advice on any gardening problem for free from our expert team by phone, post or email or in person at any one of the RHS flower shows. You can even send or bring along plant samples or photos to help the team identify and answer your problem. So, that's all we have time for in this edition. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Jenny Bowden, and all the RHS Gardening podcast team, goodbye. Goodbye.